Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I thought the way that they illustrated the be a good girl theme was pretty powerful in both of those movies. The most powerful message of that possible is Frozen. Yeah. And it's literally in the lyrics of let it go, mm-hmm. of letting go of being the good girl you always have to be. Who's got young kids who still see these movies <laughs> and who's got older boys who don't see these movies? Yeah. But the, so that's what Frozen was also about, too. So Disney's been very consistent with breaking that good girl tendency in recent yeah. years and finding your inner hero, leader, warrior, adventurer. Really moving away from this idea of a princess. Or changing the definition of one. Welcome to Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about a family's anxiety and other big feelings. Serious stuff without being too serious. I'm your co-host Robin, and I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way, and I'll even tell you what to say. We're going to do something a little different today because we're going to talk about two Pixar movies, the most recent one, Turning Red, and we broke news in last week's episode that Lynn finally watched Inside Out so many years later. Well, and the reason was because I knew we were going to do this episode, so Robin was like, you've got to watch it now. So yes, I watched it. And again, like I wasn't purposely resisting people. Yes, so I've watched these two movies So here's the thing. If you have not seen either one of these movies, we're not going to be talking about plot and breaking things down like a traditional film review. You'll still find this episode helpful because it's really how these Pixar films are really useful tools for us parents to have some really great conversations with our kids with the goal of developing emotional literacy and emotional management skills. Yeah. And so that's what was fun about watching these for me as I was watching them with my clinician's brain, my clinician's eyeballs. Really, I thought, oh, gosh, that's an interesting way to describe that. Or, oh, gosh, that's really sophisticated what they're trying to tell kids right now. Or that is really helpful for parents to understand the importance of fill in the blank. They really packed with a lot of very good emotional literacy and emotional management lessons so to speak. So much so that I'm actually pretty curious. I mean, I joked with you that like we have a mole in the Pixar board because Mm -hmm. the last several films clearly have a dedicated purpose of incorporating emotional literacy themes throughout. I mean, Luca, another one which you didn't watch, which to be honest, I thought was only okay. But their whole thing was like, how do you externalize name your worry? Mm -hmm. They had this great catchphrase, Silencio Bruno. One child says to another child, don't worry, you can do this. Just tell that voice inside you named Bruno to knock it off. And so Silencio Bruno is basically like what you wrote your book about so many years ago. Yeah, externalizing it, creating that distance, being able to observe yourself, having awareness about the different parts of you. All these great moments and all these great lessons and all these great messages 
this idea that we have to get some distance from our thoughts, that we can learn to increase our awareness about what we're thinking and not get so sucked in. It's funny because a client of mine, a young adult client of mine just sent me this little text the other day and it said, I wish we talked about how often our thoughts are crazy, irrational, or dark. Thoughts don't create your life. Your relationship to them does. She sent that to me. I was like, yes, yes, that's the message. But I think that's consistently something that they're conveying in these movies in pretty sophisticated ways, actually. I think so, too. They clearly have some sort of objective of making films that have these goals, Mm -hmm. which I think is really good, as we're big fans of Mr. Rogers here. People there have been drinking the Fred Kool-Aid, too. Well, and maybe I don't know how old those people are. They're probably a lot younger than I am. But I mean, I grew up with Fred Rogers. And so that was the Kool-Aid that I was drinking. It's <laughs> sort of maybe the people at Pixar, maybe their parents grew up with Fred Rogers, right? Oh, I'm getting so old. The thing about this that just comes across over and over again is that they're not afraid of big emotions and they're not afraid of explaining our relationship to these big emotions. If you think about older Disney movies, you know, you think about like Bambi and even Finding Nemo. There were a lot of big emotions in those movies, but they didn't have the goal of helping kids walk through them and learn how to manage them. It just sort of like you just got hit with them. So you're sitting there watching Bammy sobbing, but there's nobody helping you with your emotional management in that movie. Not to sound like a total nerd, but so yeah, so Finding Nemo is a Pixar movie, but of course, like the traditional Disney studio movies are different. But you bring up a great point because Finding Nemo was one of the earlier Pixar movies. And that father, played by Albert Brooks, who I love, and Nemo, they had a lot of anxiety in that family, Mm -hmm. but there was nothing in that movie that led you to learn what to do about it. Right, right. And, And I think that they actually got a lot of criticism from people they respected, and that might have been one of those shifts of why the more recent chapter of Pixar has been so focused on These are the emotions that we experience, and these are the ways that we can help deal with them. Yeah, I see a real difference. Even like Lilo and Stitch, do you remember that movie? Yes, that one's intense in the sense that poor Lilo is so explosive. And the thing that got me about that movie, because I'm a social worker, the National Association of Social Workers was like, what the heck? I mean, it was really, just to be clear, like they figured some things out. And I think that's exactly what we want to talk about is How are these movies instructive, both for parents and for kids in terms of emotional management? And how can they be really useful tools? Like they give you the best opportunities for having these kinds of conversations, especially if they don't really come naturally to you. So let's start with Turning Red, Lynn. What did you think? I thought it was terrific. I was captivated by it. Here's the thing that in that movie I thought was so wonderful. This was a story about how you become yourself, how you learn how to manage your emotions. I have a few things to say about that. I also thought it was a great story about figuring out with a mother-daughter relationship, how do you let a daughter separate in a way? There was a lot about achievement culture, a lot about perfection, a lot about seeking approval. And they really dove right into that in terms of how is this little girl going to become who she is in a family in which a lot of things are very prescribed and very expected. You know, I look at 
parents in real life and on screen through your lens of doing this podcast with you. And I saw that the mom was overly prepared, overly talkative, overly ready to have done everything for the child. So of Mm -hmm. course, like, the alarm is going off like autonomy alert, autonomy alert. There is no autonomy here. So you know, for people who don't listen to us, explain what that means. Explain how the mom was really not great at developing autonomy for Maymay. So Maymay was expected to do certain things. They worked together, I mean, in very literal ways, in very concrete ways. They were very joined in their expectations. It was academics. She wasn't really supposed to have a life separate from her mom in terms of the expectations. They did a good job of normalizing this prepubescent and then pubescent moving away. So they started to show things like secrecy. They started to show things like she's hiding things from her mom. Literally, she would hide things under her bed. She was making drawings that she didn't want her mom to see. All of that, they normalized that and then showed big, huge reactions in a mom when she discovered it. I don't know how much I should say if people haven't seen the movie, but she drew some pictures in in her little journal. She drew some pictures. The mom found the pictures and had a huge overreaction and it humiliated her daughter, embarrassed her daughter. And I think the message in all of that is that it's really normal. This is what kids going through puberty, this is what kids who are starting to discover themselves, this is what they're going to do. And I think if you're watching that as a mom and you're watching the over the top reaction that the mom had to this. I think you can't help but say to yourself like, oh gosh, that's really like, we shouldn't do that like that. Oh God, that's, that's really over the top. Yeah. I want to bring that point up because that's actually what my daughter and I discussed after the movie too. We know of a parent who kind of fits that mom's profile, Mm -hmm. for example, in our own crowd. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I was saying like, oh, do you think so-and-so's mom should watch this movie? Right, because she's very rigid of the expectations of what she expects from her daughter, what she allows her daughter to do, that sort of thing, too. This is who you're supposed to be to be a good girl for us. Mm -hmm. So the question is, we have listeners right now who might also be like that, but it's so easy to have blind spots in our own parenting. Mm -hmm. So I think the meta skill is to say, what about that do I do? And what do I know I don't do? And to even ask, you watch this movie with your daughter, you watch this movie with your children, and you say, do I do any of that? I mean, you open the conversation, right? You say, oh, gosh, do we know anybody who's like that? Do I do any of that? And then, of course, the tricky part is after you ask the question, then you have to listen to the answer. Well, I did that. Oh, you did? Oh, of course. I'm pretending I'm surprised. Wait, you did that? You asked that question? Yeah, of course. Of course you did. Okay. So I say, like, did you see any of that in me? Do you think that I overparent in any way? Mm-hmm. And then she looks at me as an incredibly wise 16-year-old. And she says, everything that you do has been so normalized to me. How would I know that it's outside the door? And you're like, okay. <laughs> so maybe I screwed up in other ways, but she is brilliant. <laughs> That's funny. That wasn't my reaction. It was just know, like, like, but still, you know, it was just like, okay. So she didn't give me any data there. Yeah. But I think that's the point is that we have blind spots because we normalize our own family cultures. Right. It takes a skill. It takes an effort to step outside and mm-hmm. say, is there a lesson here I need to learn? Yeah. 
We're blind to our blind spots. That's what my mentor has told me for years. We're blind to our blind spots. I think they did a good job in this movie of showing the real struggle too, right? So I didn't feel like the mom was just this one dimensional character. Like you could see the struggle. You could see that she was trying to figure this out. You could see that she had come from a long tradition with all these women around her and all of these expectations and all the judgment. I think they did a good job of humanizing the mom and not having her be sort of this dictatorial, wound tight. They made it a little more multidimensional. I was looking at some of the reviews of the film after I'd seen it and after I'd formed my own opinions and discovered there was all of this controversy, I say in air quotes about the movie because of its connection to puberty and turning red, meaning like a girl getting her period, which I found kind of humorous. I thought that was a rather clever pun. So did I. I actually thought that was pretty daring of Pixar to do. Like, we're not pulling back on this. We're talking about a girl getting her period, which is the color red. And what was the controversy? People thought that it went too far. They didn't like that we were talking about it. What was the controversy? I think there are some parents who want to deny an allegory that was there. Oh. There are some parents who are like, this has nothing to do with puberty and sexuality. Oh. And vaginas. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And also maybe they were thinking, and I didn't read any of these, but maybe it was like, well, I can't show my 10-year-old boy this movie because he's going to learn about something that he shouldn't know about. I mean, it's interesting how people would respond to that. That's funny. Well, and if you do have a 10-year-old boy or a 7-year-old boy who still wants to see this movie, the period connection isn't so there. It's like, no, no, no. It's about becoming a red panda. I mean, you know, you can take it on the layer that you want. Right, right, right. But I bet that there are some people who would be like, oh, that is inappropriate to talk about menstruation. Well, so let's talk about one of the ways the daughter learned to handle being emotionally volatile was Mm -hmm. centering herself with authentic connection. Mm -hmm. She thought of the love and the support her friends gave her. Mm -hmm. She lied to her mom and said she thought about the love her parents gave her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If your kid did that and you found out your kid did that, Man, you know, that's that's a kicker, right? Well, so it's interesting. I had a little bit of a different reaction to that part. So for one, when I was watching the movie, there was a few things that I were like, oh, okay, so maybe they just couldn't develop this as much as I would hope. But she learned that skill really quickly. So to me, she's got this red panda that comes out. And within like 30 seconds, she learned how to control it. And I was like, hmm, that seems interesting to me. They really sort of glossed over like, yes, I'm learning to control my emotions, but I just have to take a deep breath and think, I thought that was a little... It's true. That was a little simplistic. Yeah. But to your point, what I took from that is that what they were trying to illustrate or what they were trying to bring to the surface was the natural shift that happens that kids going through puberty, their peer group becomes far more important to them than parents. And that's just something that happens. Now, we know from the research also that even though on the surface, the peer groups have an enormous amount of influence, that kids will still say that their parents still have the most influence. But I thought when they were doing that, they were really showing something pretty realistic that I am going to go to my peers first and my parents are going to be outside the room. We know from the research that's not entirely true. But to me, I thought, well, that's a natural transition that happens. Yeah, that was normal to me. Maybe as a mom, 
in my fantasy, the happy vision would be of her friends and family, Mm -hmm. like in a bigger sense. But you're right. You're right. Yeah. I mean, that would be great if she was, when she was imagining she was having authentic connection, that it was with her mom and her dad and her friends and her dog and, you know, that it would all be together. So this is one of the things that I think they were talking about in the movie is that it does feel very all or nothing. It does feel like when you are making that transition and moving away from your parents, when you're separating, when you're individuating, they call it, that it does feel very all or nothing. And that's why that period of time between parents and adolescents, between parents and tweens can be so explosive because there isn't this gradual movement. There isn't this mix that you're imagining and that you would like to have. It is very distinctive and it can feel very abrupt. And that's when parents panic. They did a good job of, perhaps not even on purpose, but they did a good job of showing the panic that parents feel when their kids reject them and start becoming very loyal to their peer group. Because that's a scary moment for parents. It's often very, very abrupt, and it feels very all or nothing. So chew on that, and we'll be right back. Robin and I travel a lot. And part of traveling is that you learn that you have to compromise, right? So maybe you're not going to get the best seat on the plane. Well, you know where you shouldn't compromise? You shouldn't compromise with your health care. When it comes to your health, there's no compromising, everybody. Don't go back to that one doctor who didn't really pay attention to you, who rushed you through your appointments. Check out ZocDoc. This is the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, insurance. So literally no compromises here. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. You don't have to wait. You don't have to be on hold with a receptionist. These doctors all have verified reviews from real patients. So the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is just between 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments. I have two young adult sons. They are always needing something, right? We've had broken elbows. We've had tonsils. We've had this. We've had that. If I were a young person, if I were a parent trying to help my young person find a doctor, this is what I would use. So Go to ZocDoc.com slash Fluster and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash Fluster. ZocDoc.com slash Fluster. You know when you're listening to a song on the radio and you just have this feeling that the song was written about you or that it was someone that you love trying to say something to you? Well, now imagine the power to gift that same incredible feeling to someone you love with an original song that actually is about them and about your relationship and that Songfinch writes just for you. Songfinch lets you create an original radio quality song inspired by your own life and the people that you love. It's completely unique, it's personal, and it lasts forever. 
I had the pleasure of creating a family song with Songfinch about our summer celebrations that we have every year. I knew it was going to make everybody cry, and it certainly did. I got to be honest, I was even crying, giving all of the information and helping personalize my song with the writer that I chose. He absolutely delivered a beautiful acoustic song that captured exactly what I was looking for, and it was so fun to share with the family. So whether your song is for Father's Day, an upcoming graduation, a wedding or an anniversary, or even just a gift to show your loved one how much you care, start your song now to lock in one of Songfinch's top artists. Don't waste another dollar on more stuff. It only takes four to seven days, but that song will last forever. For a limited time, Songfinch is letting our listeners upload their song to Spotify for free so you and the lucky person or people can listen to it anywhere, anytime. So go to songfinch.com slash fluster and start your song. After you purchase, you'll be prompted to add Spotify streaming for your original song for free, a $50 value. Again, the URL is songfinch.com slash Fluster. Don't forget to share your song with us too in our Facebook group, songfinch.com slash fluster. So we're talking about turning red with this sense of the teen individuating mm-hmm. and where the role of connection with peers comes in. Mm-hmm. But that's also a really great segue into the role family plays that's the focus of Inside Out. Mm-hmm. So Let's talk about Inside Out because I just rewatched it again and I'm so impressed with so much of that movie. There's a couple parts of it that get a little long-winded, mm-hmm. but I still feel like that film conceptually is really great. So Lynn, you finally saw it yes. after pretending to have seen it. Yes. Yeah. I lied for years in case you, you haven't heard this story. Everyone, when it came out, what year did it come out, Robin? I don't even know. It came out in 2015, I think. Okay. So for six and a half years, I've been lying about it. What happened, the movie came out and everybody was like, oh my God, did you see Inside Out? Oh, oh, you'll love it. You'll love it. And I would say to my clients or families, I would say, oh no, I haven't seen it yet. And then there would be this whole discussion about they couldn't believe I hadn't seen it. So for the sake of self-preservation, I just started lying. And so when people would say, have you seen Inside Out? I would say, yes. And then we would have a conversation about it. And I clearly was totally able to bluff my way through it. But then I started confessing in other avenues. But anyway, so I've been lying about this for a long time. So we knew we were going to do this podcast. Robin said, you've got to watch it. I watched it. I loved it. Let me just tell you the first time I watched it, because I've watched it again since, I had the norovirus. I was supposed to be doing this other work. I couldn't do it. I felt terrible. So I watched Inside Out just after being up all night, barfing my brains out. That's cool because when you're really sick, it also infantilizes you. So you were like <laughs> little six-year-old Liddy Lyons. <laughs> yes, I was lying on the couch. And so at the end of Inside Out, you know, when she comes home from her runaway, I was sobbing. <laughs> so I don't know, like, were other people sobbing? Was I sobbing because I had been up all night? Was I sobbing because I had been barfing all night? Was I sobbing because I had the most incredible caffeine withdrawal headache, which is a terrible thing that happens if you are addicted to caffeine and then you can't keep anything down? I found it very emotional at the end. I thought the most emotional part, and sorry, I, I promised we wouldn't get into too much about the specifics of the film. 
But when the goofball island gets destroyed, yeah. And as a parent, you watch your child leave that unfiltered place of silly mm -hmm. and the voices of puberty and adolescence start closing that down. It's a, it's kind of a sad process to yeah. watch. When I saw Goofball Island go down, I, I was gone. You lost it. I did. I did. How much do we talk about the importance of silliness and the importance of play? It really does help you get through those teen years. But you're right. Like Goofball Island, they don't want to pretend to be a monkey anymore. There's a lot more eye rolling than silliness during those years. So for people who haven't seen Inside Out, just like in a quick nutshell, there are these great animated characters that live inside all our brains that represent five emotions. I think I'm the only one that hasn't seen, that hadn't seen Inside Out. <laughs> That's right. Everyone has seen Inside Out, but you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I was the only person. Uh, well, maybe I wasn't the only person. I'm pretty sure I was the only therapist who specializes in anxiety disorders that hadn't seen Inside Out. So yeah. We got joy. We got sadness. We have anger, disgust, and fear. Those are the five emotions. They're all played by incredible actors too. So it's just, it's really well done. Yeah. And just a little shout out and a little inside baseball here too. There's a guy named Paul Ekman, E-C-K-M-A-N, who is one of the people who has done an enormous amount of research and looking at the core emotional responses human beings have cross-culturally. And he was actually part of this movie. He was actually involved in helping them define what emotions they were going to portray in this movie, which is pretty cool. So Paul Ekman is the guy's name. Pretty interesting work. So Lynn, here's the thing. I have been so excited to talk to you about on the podcast since we started about like if we were to talk about this movie, because one of the things that I repeatedly note and have all these aha moments is how wrong we get what anxiety is. Mm -hmm. So here's the thing I want to drop for people, because I think this is what you're always trying to say. Mm -hmm. So many people think that fear, who's portrayed as this worrying, fretting character, is anxiety. Mm -hmm. But no. Disgust, anger, sadness, and fear all portray anxiety because there's a big difference between worry and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And to think about how you manage the unknown can be a variety of those emotional responses per person. Right. Some people are worriers. Some people get really angry and controlling. Some people, it's all about avoiding disgust, That's avoiding right. fear, avoiding anger. Yeah. You know, the thing about disgust is that she was using that as a way to avoid. Discomfort. Right? Discomfort. That was a defense mechanism. Yes. So, yeah. Wow. That's brilliant, Robin. Thank you. Yep. Because notice there wasn't a part called anxiety. Right. right? It was a combination of all of these parts of her that were making her feel so uncomfortable, feel so disconnected. I mean, I think that that's one of the other things that you see is when we talk about anxiety, we, I, us together, we talk so much about connection and disconnection and how anxiety is so disconnecting and how the inability to tolerate uncertainty and tolerate change and tolerate discomfort leads to all of these different responses that together make up this anxious response that disconnects. Yeah. 
You got it, baby. I like to think of myself as like, I'm in the graduate school of lit lions, right? <laughs> so when you would say things a couple years ago, like anxiety and worry aren't the same thing. Yeah. I'd be like, okay, I don't really know what that means. Now I know what that means of what the nature of anxiety is and how it's summed up in our tendency of wanting to avoid being uncomfortable. Yep. Avoid being in a situation we don't know the outcome. Yep. It's just a game changer of understanding that. Yeah. And one of the ways that comes up a lot in my clinical work is when parents will say to me, well, she doesn't really identify what she's doing as anxiety. So we try and name her anxiety or we try and name her worry. And she says, I'm not anxious. And I said, well, what's happening? Well, whenever we tell her to do something, she explodes. Or whenever we're going to change the routine, she gets very sad. Or it just seems whenever we're going on a trip or whatever, she has to ask a gazillion questions because she has to know exactly what's going to happen. But she doesn't say she's anxious. She just says she likes to know the plan. And I think that's one of the things that is so important for people to understand. And I think you bring this up so brilliantly is that it shows up in all sorts of different ways. When people say, well, I told her to pull out her anxiety and give it a name, or I told her to pull out her worry and give it a name, she'll scream at me, I'm not anxious, right? Well, no, but you are having all sorts of big feelings that together are creating this pattern of avoidance, this inability to talk about what's going on inside of you, this desire to make sure that everything goes as planned. All of that is anxiety. Interesting about semantics. I remember early on when someone made a point that it's very common for people to use the word anxious incorrectly in a sentence as simple as, I can't wait for your party next week. Oh, yeah, I'm so anxious for your party next week. Like people would misuse anxious as eager. Mm -hmm. Yep. Once that clicked, I always made sure that I never used anxious incorrectly, but I would say the phrase eager. Mm -hmm. And then you still people misuse anxiety and worry. And like, so that's a great tip for parents because if you're digging in there and starting to help this child who's exploding with anger when the routine changes, the word worry isn't going to be really helpful. Right. It doesn't really matter to me what you call it. Inside Out is a movie about parts Parts therapy has been around for a really long time and recognizing your parts and all the different parts that make us up. If anxiety doesn't resonate, if a child doesn't experience their emotional volatility as anxiety, it doesn't matter to me when they're little if we call it anxiety or not. I've said before, I had a little girl who called it her volcano part, right? That was the anger. But when did the volcano part show up? when she had to handle something uncertain, when she felt unprepared, when she didn't know exactly what was going to happen. Remember, if we look at anxiety and we define it like David Barlow did, an overestimation of the problem and an underestimation of your resources to deal with it. Let's talk more about that after this break. Picture the thing that you've always wanted to learn, and now picture that you're learning it from the person who's literally the best in the world at it. It's fantastic, and that's what you get with Masterclass. I recently listened to Matthew Walker's talk on sleep and the importance of consistency with sleep. I loved Bobby Brown's Masterclass, gave me all these tips about putting on makeup because, you know, I'm in front of a camera sometimes and I want to look good, and Bobby was such a big help. So this year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass 
actually helps you do it. Like I actually put on makeup the way that Bobby Brown taught me how to put on makeup. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass actually helps you do it. Masterclass offers over 180 instructors. So whether you want to master negotiation with Chris Voss, think like a boss with Martha Stewart, or maybe you want to learn how to just make your makeup look better with Bobby Brown or sleep better with Matthew Walker, with Masterclass, you get unlimited access to intimate one-on-one classes with the world's best I loved it. There are over 200 classes to pick from. New classes are added every single month, like a class that talks about your gut health. So many interesting things to learn. So every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's absolutely no risk. Right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash Fluster. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash fluster. Masterclass.com slash fluster. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. If we look at inside out and we look at an overestimation of the problem and an underestimation of your resources to deal with it, this little girl and her parents were both trying to figure out How do we make this huge change in our lives? What are the resources that we have to deal with it? And how do we allow ourselves to feel all the different things we're going to feel as we go through this really uncertain time? I mean, to me, that's what this movie was doing is that we've gone through this huge change. They did a good job of portraying the dad as being stressed out, that they all didn't really know what they were getting into as they made this big move, of course. How do we develop the emotional and relational resources to handle the uncertainty that life throws at us? One of the things I was really eager to hear your take on is that the character Joy, who's been this lead protagonist, Mm -hmm. has to change her relationship with sadness. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to hear your spin on what they showed. Joy's job was she was sort of in charge of making sure that everybody else's emotions didn't get big and out of control. It's interesting that they made Joy as kind of the leader and the one that everybody depended on to keep everything together. And she really wanted sadness to not get in the way of things, right? It was always trying to sort of figure out, well, where's sadness? What is she doing? How is she getting in the way of things? And it was interesting because fear, which was Bill Hader being fear, which was, which was so brilliant, he was just sort of in the background. He would throw things out and they would say like, yeah, 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 it's fine. But sadness, Joy had, had a really hard time figuring out what to do with this little creature. So Joy was really, really working to protect Riley from sadness, Right. It was really sort of like, oh, we've got to, we've got to contain sadness. Where's sadness? Sadness is going to ruin everything. Sadness is changing memories. 
there was a real sense of we have to contain sadness. What the end of the movie showed in the way that I was sobbing after vomiting all night is that it is really okay to bring sadness in, which is really interesting because as I watched Inside Out, I also listened to this podcast where Kate DiCamillo was talking to Kristen Tippett. We'll put the link in the show notes. Kate DiCamillo wrote Because of Winn-Dixie, The Tale of Despero, and also listened to this podcast where Susan Cain, who wrote the book Quiet, is about to release another book called Bittersweet, which talks about the combination of joy and sadness and what a critical part of life that is. And Kate DiCamillo, in her books, in her writing for children, also talks about the importance and the ability and almost the attraction that kids have to these powerful emotions and what a disservice we do when we try to cut them off and tell them they shouldn't be feeling that way. They made it very clear in Inside Out when the mom came in and said to Riley as she was sleeping on the floor, dad is really stressed out about this. And I think what we can do for dad is to be happy. I need you to put on a happy face. That was a seminal moment in the movie for me. The message that there's not room for sadness. And I've just been bombarded recently with this incredibly powerful, these conversations and these, this literature that really is saying, and this is what Mr. Rogers did, everybody, is that it's okay to have a combination of these feelings. Joy and sadness are inseparable. Watching this movie at this time, I mean, I think it all worked out great. I think I was supposed to watch it in 2022. And this message was so powerful to me. When I watched that movie at the time, I had like a pretty young little tyke and that I had a daughter who was a little closer to Riley's age. But the way I was sort of thinking about it was parenting an infant and a toddler and a preschooler, right? Like when you're parenting a young child, if you are fortunate to be raising a child in the absence of trauma, and a lot of people don't get to, but if you do have a child who doesn't have a lot of traumatic experiences, the child's default setting when they're very young is pretty simple. And they are in that joy space pretty easily. Like if you have the needs of an infant that you are capable of meeting, they are hungry, they are tired, they want attention, they want love. And so anger and sadness come up and then the parent can then give them those things and then we're back to that joy moment, right? Mm -hmm. The emotional evolution of an adult and a pre-adolescent, everything sort of changes. Mm -hmm. What I also thought that the movie was about was it was that thing of puberty. Like a typical six-year-old is a pretty, can tap into joy pretty easily. Yeah. 16-year-old, not the same. Yeah, so here's when you were saying that, here's what I was thinking of. When kids are little, when it's a baby or a toddler or a six-year-old, think of a toddler. I think of this funny video series that this guy did. It would be on TikTok now. I forget what was on back then. But he would just record his two-year-old, and it was all the reasons why she cried that day. And it was totally funny, right? So he, <laughs> I do he remember would say things, that. Yeah, he would yeah. say things like, she asked for an apple, I gave her an apple, now she's hysterical. And I think that when kids are little, there is a whipsaw between joy and sadness. You are correct. And we accept that as normal. 
they're absolutely laughing and joyful one minute and then hysterical the next minute. And you don't really know. You don't really know what happened. And each kid is different. Yeah. One of my kids was pretty joy. The other was absolutely turning on a dime really fast. Yeah. But when they're little, we normalize that. We sort of, you know, we're like, oh my gosh, things are going so well. And now she's screaming. When they start to get older, then we don't normalize. And I think that's one of the things we saw in both of those movies is the discomfort that the parents had when the child was having those big emotions of sadness for bigger reasons. Then it becomes this idea of sort of like this sadness is pathological or this sadness is concerning or this sadness is worrying, which brings me to my bigger point, what we have to pay attention to. And I think what both of these movies showed and Inside Out did a better job of it, I think, is that it really is okay for our kids to feel these big emotions and we've got to stop pathologizing them. I think that's what happens when kids move into that adolescence place, that tweener place, is that we start to get afraid of their emotions. Whereas when they're little, we laugh. They eat five blueberries and it's the greatest thing ever. And then they eat the sixth blueberry and they start screaming. That doesn't terrify us as much as the emotions that kids have when they're older. That's what I saw with Riley is the parents were really, what they learned was that there has to be room for sadness. That has to be a part of this. I think we shift a little bit with that. All right, Robin, we could talk about this for hours. There's so much in both of these movies to talk about. What do you think are the really important points that we want parents to take away? I think the meta point that we're talking, we didn't even talk about Encanto, which is another fantastic movie. But between Encanto, Turning Red, Luca, and Inside Out, I think every parent should have a movie night with their kids intentionally to start really good conversations. So I want to cite an earlier episode we did in January of 2021, and it was about becoming a black belt in emotional literacy. Like, what are the goals? If you listen to this podcast and this is your jam and you're constantly thinking about your family's emotional culture, how do you raise kids who are really emotionally aware and literate and sophisticated? And you're always trying to push that. A, the goal is so that everyone in the family has deeper, more authentic relationships, right? Like when we manage our emotions, that's the goal. Mm -hmm. But use these films to start these types of conversations. And that's what you said, is that after that episode, when we even watch Friends now as a family, we would <laughs> we would talk about emotional management of the characters. Mm-hmm. And when you normalize that as a family and you normalize talking about emotions, that's like leading down the good path. Mm-hmm. And the thing too is that you can have a movie night. You don't have to, if you feel like, oh God, how do I do this? And it's going to be so weird and we've never done that before. You can just have a movie night and watch it. And then those conversations can come up over the next few days. And there can be many conversations where you can say, months later, you can say, oh my gosh, you know what? You're feeling like Riley right now. Remember in Inside Out, she felt like she always had to be happy and she didn't know how to be sad. It's okay to be sad, just like Riley. It can be just examples. They can just be these ongoing stories that you use to help teach. Stories help teach. Stories allow us to step into things. This is why I tell stories all the time. And these movies are just stories that you can use, that you can pull on. They're just a tool that you can use as a parent 
to help your children talk about these things, to normalize these things, to have conversations that maybe you don't know how to have. They're just really good tools. It's funny, as you say that, I've witnessed you parent your own toddlers in the moment, and you can just like create a story about a little naughty fox and a little (laughs) angry porcupine really fast. But a lot of people don't have that skill. Yeah, I do that with my husband and my teenagers too. (laughs) We just had a discussion about a naughty fox. No, I'm just kidding. We don't, yeah. But not everyone can do that. And that's what's so cool about this is that these are on the parenting shelf. Everyone has access to who sees these movies. All of these things are great for the stories. Yeah. Like you said, it's not like you have like an official discussion afterwards. Yeah. You can even bring up the next day. I really loved that part of the movie of blankety blank Mm -hmm. because and then it's something that's age appropriate and specific. That's it. Right. So if you're having a movie night and you create a PowerPoint and then have a discussion afterwards, then I want you to watch the movies again by yourself. (laughs) I want you to watch them again by yourself. You know what's so funny, though? PowerPoints in parenting now are like a thing. I know. Every like six months to a year, one of my kids decides they want a new pet. Yeah. And then the PowerPoint gets made. Yeah. They make the PowerPoint in a very persuasive argument of why they need this type of exotic frog. (laughs) It's so sad because I'm totally into all the skills they learn making those PowerPoints. So I'm like, PowerPoint. But no on the pet. (laughs) Yeah. I'll get you the new version of PowerPoint. (laughs) I won't get you the frog. We are getting the frog at the beginning of the school year. Awesome. So Robin, I just want to tell you that as I'm sitting here, literally, and I mean this literally, two minutes before we started doing this episode, I sent off my manuscript for my book that I finished. Yay! Yay, yes. That's huge. Yeah, it's huge. The Anxiety Audit, which started as a program that we did for Fluster Flucks, has now been turned into a book. So we went the opposite way. And then it will become a major motion picture. No, it's not. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I sent it off. I hit send. So my brain feels light and clear and I'm excited. And it's available for pre-order. If you want to go on Amazon.com, you can get it. The anxiety out. Let's put that link in the show notes for the pre-order. And what's the pub date, Lynn? October 18th. Woohoo! Yeah. That is fantastic. We have a good fall planned. We have a family retreat coming out in the fall, which more information will be released soon. And then we will have Lynn's new book, which is amazing. And also just everybody, it's April 1st, April Fool's Day, but I am not fooling, haha, when I say that you've just got a few more days. If anybody's trying to sneak into our teen retreat that's happening in a few weeks at the Woodstock Inn in Woodstock, Vermont. There's still a few spots left. So if you want to grab on that, registration closes. On Monday. On Monday. So grab a spot. We'd love to have you. All the families are bringing their teens so far. We have a great group. We don't have any parents yet coming alone. However, I will say that it will be totally fine if you want to come without your teens, if you want to come with a friend or by yourself. Mm -hmm. Why don't you give them a little bit of a heads up on what they can expect? So this is really going to focus on the transition into big life, right? So it's, I'm going to talk about social media. I'm going to talk about the college process or the moving out of high school process. I'm going to talk about transition. So even if you've got teens that are entering high school, 
I'm going to talk about emotional management, and I'm really going to talk a lot, just as we talked about in this episode, of how do you learn to tolerate and handle and love your children, your teens through their big emotions, social relationships, all that kind of stuff. It's really going to be focused on parents and teens and how to navigate this time of life. And the skills that teens need to be developing. Yeah, it's always about the skills. And how do we help kids develop these skills so that they can successfully move forward while they're feeling big things, not get rid of the big things, not get rid of the big feelings, but how do we help them successfully manage these big transitions? You always talk about front-loading. Yep. Why I'm excited about hearing what you have to say is you front-load the skills and the situations so that maybe when your kid is going off to college or moving out of the house, when they face a difficult roommate situation, when they face challenges academically, do they have the emotional skills to handle these problems on their own? That's right. Yeah, that's our job. That's our job. So yeah, it's always about the skills, the emotional management, communication. I'm going to talk about relationships. There's a lot that we're going to cover. It's going to be great. And if I said that and you're a parent, you're like, but I'm going to help them figure that out, then you should come. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because you got to work on your skills too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So join the Facebook group so that you can ask Lynn your question on an upcoming episode. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly. Your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact invented. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talked to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk, and let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it.